but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. The earth. Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from the series, Witnesses, a study on the book of Acts. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Father, we hear... This morning, glorify your name. You are passionate about your glory, and we as a church want to be passionate about it as well. And so as we sing and as we now approach the Holy Scriptures, I pray that Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, will be glorified. And if it's me just up here on my own, Father, trying to do that, I can't. Because I love myself, and I rebel constantly against you, and I am a sinner, and I am broken and needy, and I ask for your grace now, that you would help me to feed your sheep. This is your church, Lord Jesus, who you purchased with your blood for your glory, not mine. And so please, despite my failures and weaknesses, Father, glorify yourself through me. May your, your people be encouraged and challenged, whatever is appropriate, where they're at, Lord, in their, in their walk right now. I pray for my brothers who are preaching right now across the city. I just ask that you would give them just a a double anointing. I just pray that you would fill them with your spirit. I pray that they would feed their flocks well, that the gospel would be proclaimed faithfully in the church, that people would walk out refreshed and joyful because of the fact that they are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Help them. I pray for our nation. I ask that you would open the eyes of our nation. It's broken. It thinks it needs more education or more government or more programs or more whatever, and what they need is a new heart. Oh, God. And so may churches like this one be witnesses. That's what we're talking about, Lord. We want to be witnesses. We want to reflect you. We want to point people to you. We want to show them the grace and hope and joy that they can have in Christ. And so please give us open doors for the word that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. So that Jesus is exalted in this place and in the world. For his glory we pray. Amen. Thanks. You guys can have a seat. And turn in your Bible, look at those windows, y'all are rock stars, I'm telling you, isn't that awesome? Only five more months, y'all, I can tell you, okay? There's concrete in the back, I don't know if you've seen it recently, but there's concrete back there, the pillars are going up, so five more months and y'all are gold. There are some seats down front, so uh, a few of you guys can come on in. Acts chapter 8, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. We're working through this book, have been since August, and we'll continue to do so through the new year. I remember the first time I saw... Jurassic Park, all right, I was, you know, I think in college or high school, and this is in the infancy of CGI, and so it's kind of brand new and exciting, and look at them dinosaurs, and they look so real and all that, but I was thinking about this week that the movie Jurassic Park is a lot like ministry. It's a lot like the Christian life. You say, how? Because it starts out great, and you're amazed, and look at the dinosaurs, and look how beautiful, and look how clean, and look at the nice meal, and the nice Jeep, and the nice fences, and it don't take long before people are getting eaten, and you're running for your life, and that's ministry. It's great, and look at it, exciting, and it's cool, and it's, wow, look at it, it's awesome. The next minute, you're getting eaten by somebody, and you're like, what in the heck happened? 
That, that's, that's what's going on sometimes. That's the Christian life. And as God has placed you as his witness, wherever he's got you, some of you he's got you at SCAD and Armstrong and Savannah State and Savannah Tech. Some of you he's got you on that base in Stewart or Hunter. Some of you he's got it in the big warehouses and the big city that is Gulfstream. Some of you he's got you as a school teacher, a stay-at-home mom, a lifeguard, a mechanic, all these things. And as you live as his witness, look, there is going to be great highs and there's going to be great lows. You know where it's really messy the most? It's right here in the church. This is as broken as it gets. It's as messy as it gets. And we have a great text of scripture this morning because it's going to affirm to you that you, if you're experiencing these things, are not crazy. Now, you may be crazy for other reasons, but not because you're experiencing great highs and great lows. That it is normal in the Christian life, that it is normal in ministry as you live, that there's going to be unbelievable highs and there's going to be great lows. And it's not crazy. And so we're going to look at some of these today in Acts chapter 8 and talk about them because I want us to leave encouraged and challenged wherever it's appropriate. And I'm going to highlight three highs. I'm going to highlight three lows, and they're related to each other. I'm going to overlap a little bit from last week, um, and then we're going to jump in. And, and so if you're, and you're doing your homework and reading ahead, we're going to get up to verse 25 this week. Next week, we're going to do the rest of chapter 8. So if you're reading ahead, 26 to the end of the chapter for next week. But re- remember where we've been. If you're new, you haven't been here before, we've, everything that's taken place so far has taken place where? What location? Y'all can speak. Jerusalem, right? Jesus said this, right? He said, you are going to be my witnesses. He said, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. The result of the Holy Spirit coming on you, you're going to be witnesses. You're going to testify to me. Where? First in Jerusalem. That's where they've been for eight chapters now. All in Jerusalem. But that's about to change, and they're going to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. They're about to go to the ends of the earth, right? Why? Because last week, someone got killed, Right? Stephen, the first martyr of the church, and that is going to spiral into something that is going to be continuing even to this day, 2,000 years later, that the church will be persecuted. So let's look at it. Let's jump into verse 1 through 3. Saul approved of his, that is Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. After the kill of Stephen, the martyr, the the floodgates opened, and now becoming a follower of Jesus in Jerusalem is very, very difficult. It's not just going to church anymore. You get baptized, you follow Christ, now it's on And Saul is ravaging the church, and they are scattering throughout the regions. Imagine how bad it's got to be if you leave the home you've been in your entire life. If you leave your father's business, which was his father's business, which is his father's business, all the way back centuries, and you have to leave and scatter your home. Here's kind of a map of what's going on. They're in Jerusalem right here, and now they're spreading out to the north and to the south, Samaria and Judea. They're, They're scattering because why? Saul is ravaging the church. Isn't that a great word? Not if you're the one being ravaged, but for us reading it. It's just vivid. He is tearing it limb from limb. He is throwing men and women. He doesn't care. He doesn't, he doesn't discriminate. He's throwing them in the jail. He's going house to house. He is ravaging the church. 
And, and his one goal is to destroy the followers of Jesus of Nazareth. That's his goal. Now, here's the thing you got to understand. Saul, everything, oh, yeah, Saul's just a mean guy. He likes to pick on people. No. Saul thinks he's doing good. This is the smartest pupil of the smartest Pharisee. He is the number one student. He, in their lines, is the godliest guy. He thinks he is doing God's work. And he is passionate, and he is zealous, and he is sincere about it. But is he really doing God's work? And this is why that's huge for us, because we live in a culture that says, well, as long as you're sincere, that's all that matters, right? As long as you're passionate and you believe it with all your heart, that's what really matters, isn't it? Does it? You can be sincere and you can be sincerely wrong. Passion is not a, a blank check to do what you want. And, and let me use the example. The folks from Jonesboro Baptist Church, they're sincere, and they're idiots. Okay? And I said it. Put that one on the MP3. Because they are wrong. They're sincerely wrong on how they treat people and the message of the gospel. Sincerity, and, and it's easy to say, oh, yeah, you know, it's for the people that are out there. Sincere. But when you as a Christian think you're doing right and you're running over people, because you're passionate, I'm just passionate. If, if everyone in your wake is like, ah, then, then maybe you need to reevaluate how you handle things. Paul, or Saul at this point, is sincere. But here's, here's what I want you to see. I want you to step back 50,000 feet a little bit. Who's writing this book? Luke is writing this book. When is he writing it? He's writing it after Paul becomes a believer and goes to Rome. In fact, there's going to be a place in the book where there's going to be a transition. It's going to be Paul went here, Paul went here, Paul went here, and then it's going to transition to we went here, we went here, we. What you find out is Luke becomes a partner with Paul going all over the world. They're hanging out together. In fact, at the end of the book, when Paul goes to Rome, guess who's there? Luke. So when Luke is writing this, guess who's there? Paul. How do you think it made Paul feel when he gets to chapter 8 and read, but Saul was ravaging the church? How does that make him feel? I'll tell you how it makes him feel. He tells us. It breaks his heart. Because he says this in 1 Corinthians. He lets us know. I am the least of the apostles. I am unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. There is great regret in the heart of Paul over what he did. But here's what I love, and this leads to our first up of the Christian life and ministry. Look what Paul says next. Very next verse, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. The biggest high of the Christian life and of ministry and the messiness that's here is one word. It's grace. Think about that. Here's Paul. He was a murderer of Christians. And he says, but God's grace was not in vain. If you came in the doors this morning of this church and you are a Christian, then you are living 
in the life of grace. Paul, we read it earlier, Ephesians 1, 1 to 5 through 7. We, we cut it off in the middle. The next line is the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Think about that word. He, Paul says he lavished you with grace. That's like this huge amount of grace. It's so big. It's crushing on you. It just lavishes you. It covers you. That's God's grace. And some of you need to hear that because you came in those doors this morning and you did not have the banner of Christian week. Billy Graham, you were not. And you came in thinking, I can't sing. I'm a fake. I'm a fraud. And what you need to hear is you may be. But if you are in Christ, there is and you are not what you once were. Paul is no longer a ravager of the church. He is a child of the king. He is an heir of the kingdom of God. And for some of you who struggle with your past, and I know you do, that you and your wife, we should have done this in the early parts of our marriage and there's regret. We should have been pure before marriage. We should have been better with our money. Some of you, I should, wish I didn't do that. I wish I wasn't, a, I wish I didn't waste my college years drinking it away. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. And that's fine to look back and have regret. But understand that is not what you are if you are in Christ. There is grace. You are a new creation. All things have passed away before new things have come. And you need to understand that and you need to Believe it. It is a freeing truth that the grace of God erases and forgives and justifies. That you are not what you were. It is the highest of high. It is the highest of high. The guilt of your past is gone. But with that high in this, these three little verses, there's a low. Ask this question. How is it that God accomplishes his will for them to spread from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth? Was it by choice? Did they say, oh, let's go down to Judea and Samaria and hang out with the boys. Tell them about Jesus. Is that how it happened? How did it happen? Through persecution. Through adversity. And here's the hard truth for us in the Christian life and in ministry, wherever you go, that sometimes God brings forth the most fruit and the most life change and the most shaping in adversity, right? That's a, that's a low for me. I don't know about y'all. That's hard truth. How, bring me some adversity, God. I love it. You're weird. Right? Who wants adversity? But think about this. Where do you trust God the most? When you got a full bank account or when there's 25 cents less? Where are you going to trust more? Where are you going to be more dependent? When you feel capable and strong and able and I got this, I've done it before, or when you are broken and tired and weak, where are you more dependent? Where does, if I light a match, how bright does it shine in this room compared to if I do it in the closet over there? Where does it have the most impact, in here or in that dark closet? The light in the dark. And when there is darkness around you, when there's conflict with your spouse and there's conflict with your kids and conflict at work and everything seems to be falling apart, that is dark. When you are able to have peace in that and others see the chaos in your life and like, how are they sane right now? That is light. That is what a witness does. When there is 
slander, when this person on your kid's soccer team is talking about you and talking about your kid or, or the teacher at school or this person over here is talking behind your back, when, when everyone knows it and you don't go and try to get back at them and gossip about them and make sure you defend yourself, when you do not revile in return but you bless instead, that is light and dark. When you are broke as a joke or brokenhearted, your boyfriend left you or whatever it is, physically broke, pain, and you're able to smile and worship, and people are like, I know what's going on in their life. Her husband has cancer, and he's a, she's able to worship. That is light and dark. That is where God does his best work. His greatest work was on the cross, and there was nothing darker than that. That's a hard truth. That's a T-Rex chasing you in a Jeep. But that's where God works. And what you need to hear is, if you're in that place, if you're in the Jeep, it's normal. It's okay. The early church was facing it. Right? Let's continue. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city. Samaria is to the north, but it's down the hill. So it's always geographically down. So he went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Messiah, the Christ. Now, here's what you need to understand. He is going into a place where everyone hates everybody, to Samaria. Jews hate Samaritans. Here's why. A couple hundred years earlier, the northern kingdom of Israel got taken off to Assyria. The southerners got sent to Babylon, both in captivity. While the northerners were in captivity, they started to intermarry. They started to mix their Jewish religion with the Assyrian religion. It came up with this kind of synchristic, weirdo, Jewish, Jewish kind of mix. The southern kingdom went off, and they didn't intermarry for the most part. And they kept their Jewish distinction. So when both groups come back, the north and the south, the southerners are like, everybody had a hard time, y'all, but y'all compromised. Y'all weren't faithful to God, so y'all are a bunch of half-breed Assyrian Jews, and we hate you, because you don't even do the right Jewish thing. You don't even have the Jewish traditions. So there's this huge tension on, we're better than you because of what you did, and you didn't do this, and we were this, ha, ha, ha. Now, I know that that doesn't relate to churches, all right, especially in the South, but in case you know somebody, just remind them of this. Now, we could, we could couch this a hundred ways and dress it up. How often is... We do better than you because we do this and you do this and you did that and we did this. That's exactly what's going on. And that is why they hated the Samaritans, but that is why Philip is in the middle of them, right? And he's preaching and the crowds with one accord pay attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying out with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. There's this, this new gospel they've never heard. They got this false religion, this Jewishness versus this and that and the other. And now the, the gospel's being proclaimed with power. People couldn't see or sing. The lame are walking. It is amazing the power of God is at work. And how do they respond? How do they receive? Love verse 8. So there was much joy. They respond with joy. When you trade your religious system and be good, do good, feel good with the gospel, there is every time the gospel is preached and believed, I don't care what church, what country, whatever, there is always joy when it's truly received. Always. Right? Even in the middle of messiness and brokenness. And that is a great high of, of the Christian life. There is great joy. Here's why. If you're a slave... 
and you are freed, how do you respond? Thanks. Is that your response? The one who is enslaved and now is free? You're enslaved to sin and now you're free? Right? How about the one who has been guilty, who knows they're guilty, and they're standing before the judge, and the judge says, not guilty. What's the response? I kind of wanted to go to jail. Is that the response? Or is there joy? I'm innocent. I've been justified. I've been declared righteous. When those who have no future, who have no hope, now have the hope of heaven, when those who are alone and depressed and down realize that God has never leaves you and forsake you, those who are tired of trying to earn God's favor, do good, feel good, do good, am I done enough, have I done enough, when you can rest in the finished work of Christ, there is always joy. There's always joy. That's the response. Think about this. Heaven. That's the big E on the eye chart, right? Where are you going? Heaven. You're going to spend most of your time there. Heaven. When's the last time some of you thought about heaven? Meditated on heaven? Got excited about heaven? I was talking with my, my nine-year-old, six-year-old, laying with them, reading this week, and we're talking about heaven a little bit. And that dad, is there going to be, is there going to be uh, animals in heaven? I said, well, in the kingdom, you know, there's he- you know, this and that, and there's animals, and a lion lays with the cobra, and blah, blah, blah. You know, lion lays with the kids, and blah, blah. Dad, is there sharks in heaven? Like, I think so. Do they eat people? Not sure about that one, but I'm pretty sure they don't. But it won't hurt if they do bite you. But I want my kids to think about the he- heaven, because that's where we want to go. That's where we're going. Jesus talks about heaven and the greatness there. Paul talks about it. And when you think about that, it doesn't matter how many dinosaurs are chasing you here. If that's where you're going, it brings joy. And this is why I talk about this at church, because some of y'all do not know what joy is. You come in all grumpy-faced, and you haven't seen your teeth in six months, and that's fine. You're going to learn that the messiness of the world we leave out there. When we come in here once a week to kind of rejuvenate and refresh, this is a little taste of heaven. It's a little taste of at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, and your presence is the fullness of joy. That, that's this, a little bit, just a smidge. And you need to learn. I'm going to hammer this until the cows come home. Some of y'all need to get over yourself in the singing time. I'm just telling you. Okay, you need to get over yourself. And you know what? No one cares that you stink at singing. No one cares. If you were good, you would be on stage. Okay? So let's just assume that everyone out there stinks and that frees you up to sing. Because I'm quite honestly tired of grumpy singers. And I think God is too. You might as well not sing. Right? If there is joy... Fills you up from the bottom. I'm sick of this. Well, Christianity is a a mind thing. Jesus says, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's everything. Everyone do this. So you are capable. Okay, good. (laughs) Okay, just making sure there's no rotator cuffs, okay? I I know where you're at now, so you're all guilty. Okay. (laughs) But when we come to sing, 
worship. When we get into that new building, you think there's going to be more space. Actually, there's not. There's just going to be more seats, right? That's what we like. We like being together, singing together. No one cares. We're really not impressed. Me and Cain are the worst singers in the church. Cain's the worst. I'm second worst. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Have you ever heard old boy? I'm sorry. Loves the Lord. Has a tone deaf. All right? But you know what? It doesn't matter. Joyfulness in your worship because at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And if you are here and you are in Christ, you have been forgiven of your sin. You are redeemed. You are a child of God. And it doesn't matter if the dinosaurs are chasing you. You know where you're going. That's a high. But, it's always a but. I love the text. The changes in the text is so great. So remember, the original text doesn't have the little line. Your Bible probably says, Simon the magician believes. It doesn't have that. It doesn't have numbers and anything. The original Greek text would have said, so there was much joy in that city, but there was a man. There's always a man, isn't there? Some of you are that man. Some of you married him. <laughs> but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was something great. He's involved probably in some demon, demonology. There's some, there's some power of the demons he's got, all right, whatever that looks like. Um, he's calling himself great. It's not that they're saying it. He says, I am someone great. Look what I can do. They paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. Literally, it says, his, his name is the power of God. All right? That's, that's what they're calling him, the power of God. Put that on your desk, the power of God. Sign your emails. Uh, he was a single man. The reason I know he's single, because no wife would ever let him get away with that. All power of God is going to take out some trash tonight. <laughs> right? But here's a guy who is claiming to be something, and he's impressing people with his, his magic. But... When they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. He's losing influence. They're seeing greater things. They're seeing truth. They're being freed. And even Simon, it says himself, believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. The one who was amazing others is now amazed. Now, his faith, we're going to see in a minute, is not real. It's not legit. But for now, it's the kind of, if you can't beat him, join him. But here's the downer. Here's the low. There is great joy in the kingdom. There's great joy in ministry. But there are also joy killers. There are those who will try to steal your joy. There are those who will try to bring you down, and they don't want to see you joyful. And religious people are the worst. They are. They don't want you to be joyful because they're not. And usually it's people that are all about themselves, like this guy calling himself great. If you get some time this afternoon, Google Brian Regan walked on the moon. All right, he talks about the me monsters, the people that they're always, but I did this and I did this and you did this. Oh, but yeah, but I did this. And you always are wanting up. These are the people in the church that come in and their spiritual resume. Well, I went on this mission trip and I memorized this passage and I did this and I did this and I did this and blah, 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 blah. And no, no, no. Yeah, I know you do this, but I do this better and blah, blah, blah. And that's what they want. It's all me, 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 me. And you try to say in your community group, well, this is what God is teaching me. Well, I learned that lesson three years ago and God spoke to me audibly in Aramaic and I understood it. And then, you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's always the next level up. That they have the spiritual gift of cynicism and telling you what they do better than you. 
or how their other church did it better than this and blah, 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 blah. right? And I'm telling you, they're usually consumers. They're not givers. They're not servers. They're usually all about themselves. They want to be seen. If they are serving, they're only in places where they can be seen. And they are, let me just give you a hint, they're not really joyful. They don't have joy. They act like it. They pretend. But there is no way because they are worshiping themselves. And when you worship yourself, you make a lousy God. They're not joyful. They pretend to be because they want you to worship them too. But they're miserable because you cannot come to your marriage and your, your ministry and your, your workplace and all those things be about me, 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 me. Because your marriage is supposed to proclaim the love of Christ and your work is supposed to, to make most of Christ and your ministry is a place where you serve like Christ. And when you are all about yourself there, you are miserable even if you pretend not to be. So they're miserable. Don't let them steal your joy. Don't let them think, oh, look how they are. They do all these things. Don't be discouraged. They're out there. You just remember the words of Jesus. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. You just keep following him. Because in the kingdom, nobodies go far and somebodies go nowhere. Nowhere. Nobodies go far and somebodies go nowhere. And be on guard of the me monster in you. Because you will steal someone else's joy. It's not about us. It's not about CBC, three letters. It's about Jesus Christ, period, end of story. Anything else? There's no joy. So great highs, joy, great lows, there's joy killers. Let's keep reading. And here's where it gets a little interesting and controversial. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a controversial passage, all right? I'm going to give you kind of the three big interpretations throughout church history, and I'll tell you where I land. Number one is that some people will say, well, see, you have to have some big wig come and lay hands on you and make it official, and then when that happens, then you're in the deal, all right? Because they sent Peter and John, and they prayed for them, they received the Holy Spirit. That's not the heart of the text. And since the Reformation, that's pretty much been squelched. But that's been a traditional view in the church. Second view, about 100 years ago or so, in a little street in California, the Pentecostal movement was, was started. And one of the tenets of, of the... Pentecostal movement is that you get saved, you get baptized by water, and eventually you get to a certain level of maturity, or you pray, and then, then you are given the Holy Spirit, which is typically marked by tongues and other signs. Now, there's great folks in that camp who I love, and there's great lessons to be learned from them. One, for instance, is they have more joy in the Lord than most. Some of us frozen chosen could learn a little from that. Secondly, they have faith in a big God. They, they believe in the bigness and the grandness of God. We could use a little bit of that. But what I see in the rest of Scripture, if I only had this passage, that idea of get saved and later on the Spirit comes, if I, if I only had this passage, then maybe that would be something that I would hold to. But I, because of the rest of the New Testament, I think there's some challenges there. Here's one of them. Paul in Ephesians 1 says, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel, and believed, you were sealed with the Spirit. Paul unites belief and the Spirit coming 
in one place in Ephesians 1, which makes sense because in our theology, you don't have it in you to even believe apart from the Spirit. That he must draw you, he must open your eyes, he must give you faith. If it's not the Holy Spirit, then you can't do it. So he says, he identifies belief and the receiving of the Spirit at one point. In, in Corinthians, he says, we, for in one Spirit, we were all baptized into the body. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, and we are all made to drink of one Spirit. Maturity is not the Corinthians' issue, okay? They are not considered a mature church. They are immature, yet they have drunk of the Spirit. And not all of them spoke in tongues, which he even goes into and says. And so the idea in Romans 8 9, I don't have a slide, is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And you're not going to get any more. The question is not how much spirit you're going to get. It's how much of you is the spirit going to get. How much yieldedness to the Holy Spirit are you going to have? And so I think that the the view of the Pentecostals, where there's a second blessing, the second great awakening, the second deal, it has some challenges from the rest of Scripture. So here's what I believe is going on here, and here's the third position, and here's one of the, it's really the traditional position of the church, is that the apostles are in the process of creating one church. See, the Jews, these early Jews, they got problems. They don't like anybody. They don't like the Gentiles, they don't like the Samaritans, they don't like the Romans, and they don't like other Jews. They don't like many people. They don't like them. And so what do they do? They hear the Samaritans, who they hate, have received the gospel, they want to make sure. So they send the big wigs, the two biggest wigs they have, Peter and John, to make sure it's the real deal. And when Peter and John see it, they pray, what happens? The exact same thing that happens to the Jews. They receive the Spirit. It's like a Pentecost all over again. And we're actually going to see it four times in the book. It happens in Acts 2. It happens here. When the Gentiles believe in Acts 10, it happens. And in Acts 19, when the Old Testament saints that never heard of Christ receive it, same exact thing. Why? Because God is in the process of making one church. And he doesn't want those Jews in Jerusalem thinking, okay, we'll let you watch, but y'all are the JV. Because we got the Spirit and y'all didn't. And we did this, and y'all did, because that's our tendency. We do it this way, so we're the varsity. And you guys are fine to watch and learn from us, but you're the JV. And God is saying, no, 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 there is no JV. There is one varsity, and it's in Samaria, and it's in Rome, and it's in Jerusalem. I have made you all to drink of my spirit. And the apostles are there to validate it. This is the real deal, just like it will happen again in Acts 10 when Peter will say, Can God refuse the Gentiles now even? That's what's going on here. Because God is about building one church. Yes, there's different denominations and different locals, but there's one church. And we are not more or less in the church than the other churches in this town that preach the gospel. One church. One big C church. And that is what's going on. But here's the beauty of it. And here's here's the next up, the third up and high, is that when you are in ministry and you you are living As a witness, you will see people's lives legitimately change. There is a legitimate heart change in the apostles right here. The apostles, Peter, John, James, they hated Samaritans. All of the Jews did. So much so that if they were here in Jerusalem and they wanted to go to Galilee up here, they would walk all the way to the beach and around. Even though I-95 ran right here. They hated him. They would not walk through this how much they hated him. In fact, there's a story in Luke 9. You can read about it. Jesus is in Galilee. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's going to take I-95 south. He's not going around because he loves the Samaritans. And he tells the apostles, 
go ahead of me, prepare the way in this little Samaritan village. They go in, they say, Jesus is coming, we need to prepare the way. The Samaritans say, we don't want nothing to do with Jesus of Nazareth. Peter and James and John come back and say, Jesus, you want us to burn their brains out with fire? You want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? And Jesus says, you do not know what spirit you are from. They, they wanted to kill them. They wanted to burn them. That's the heart of the apostles before this. Now what are they doing? They're laying hands on them. They're touching them. They're loving them. They're welcoming them. That is a changed heart. That is what the Holy Spirit does. That is what you get to be a part of when you're in ministry and living the Christian life. You get to see a deadbeat dad who doesn't care about his kids and his wife start moving towards his wife's heart, start shepherding his kids. Life change. You get to see two, two folks that are living together, and I've done this many times, living together and they want to get married. And I say, okay, you got to come apart and live pure for a specific amount of time. They live apart, even though it costs them financially. And then after a few months of purity, they come back and marry, and it is a beautiful thing. You get to see a teenager who hated the Lord walking with Jesus. You get to see some of you, and this is some of you, you came in several months ago like this. Oh. I had to park four miles away, and what's this church doing, and my wife's making me come, and now you're serving graciously and cheerfully at some door, welcoming people yourself. That is life change. That is awesome, and it is an awesome thing to be part of it, and that's what you get to be part of in the church, in ministry, but there's a down. As much as you see lives change, there's also people who are fake. The people who will deceive, the people who will hurt, and that's this guy. Look at verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone who I lay my hands on may receive the Spirit. He wants the power. In fact, we get a word now, simony. It's an old word, but simony means the purchasing of ecclesiastical privileges, buying indulgences, buying privileges in the church. Buying power in the church. It's simony. We get it from this guy's name. And I love Peter's response. He is in his grill. Peter said, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could attain the gift of God with money. Literally, the text says, may your money burn in hell with you. That is not a seeker-sensitive sermon. This shows where this guy's heart is. You are headed for destruction. Take your money with you. You have no part in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And so he gives them his application. Repent, turn from your sin, and pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You're lost, Simon. You're in the gall of your sin. And he says, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing will happen, that this won't happen to me. He's seen the power of God. He's pray, please pray for me. It sounds so humble, but that's not what Peter said. Peter said, you pray, you repent, you turn from your sin. Simon is a fake. He's a fake. Here's the question. Is it possible for someone to come in contact with the truth of Jesus and be around Christians and get baptized and see legitimate life change and miracles and agree with all the facts and, and, and lead everyone around them to believe that they're a Christian, but they don't really get it? Is that possible? Absolutely, and it happens all the time. It happens all the time. Right? He's a fake. In fact, church history says that he goes on to start 
be one of the founders of Gnosticism, the heresy that the early church fought for three, four hundred years. Simon was one of the founders. Huge. But he prayed the prayer. He got baptized. He went to the start here, filled out a card, was on the greeting team, taught a Sunday school class. Fake, 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 fake liar. And look, the worst thing in the world is not fool. Philip is fooled. Makes me feel good. He's a big wig. He gets fooled. But the biggest thing in the world is not fooling me, your community group. You can deceive us. We live in the South. Everyone knows the language. But Jesus in my heart, said a prayer, turned from my sin, got baptized, nine years old. Everyone can say those things. The worst thing is, is if you're deceiving yourself. That's what's worse. It's the person who comes in and thinks, God wants me to be good. If I'm good, I do good things. I need to be good, then God gives me heaven because I'm good. I went to church. I, I paid the check. I, I got in the water. I served. I'm good. God give me heaven because I'm good. Actually, if that's you, the opposite is true. It's not to the good person. God rewards heaven. It's those who realize they are broken and separated and sinful, and they can do nothing to get to God, and they've turned from their sin, and they believe what Christ has done. That is the person to get to. And a sign that you are a believer, that you've truly come to faith in Christ, is that you do constantly repent of sin, that you're turning constantly from your sin. You're identifying sinful motives and sinful things, and you're turning, and you're, and you're embracing the gospel again. Some of the, the, the ladies group on Thursday morning, and there's another community group that are doing the book by Paul Miller, The Praying Life, and I love one of the quotes that he says in here. He says, as a Christian matures, he sees more and more of his sinful nature. And at the same time, he sees more and more of Jesus. And as, as he sees his weaknesses more clearly, he begins to grasp his need for more grace. See, as you mature, it's not that you're oh, I'm more perfect and I don't sin. You're actually identifying more and more sin and more, and you're turning more and more to Christ. That's what maturing looks like. No repentance, no turning from sin, maybe no conversion. And again, you can deceive me and elders in your community group, but you will not be standing before Bill Fowler one day. You will be standing before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he is not going to be deceived. And the most chilling words in all of the scripture, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. I went to CBC. I got baptized. I was taught Sunday school. I tithed. I got my records. They sent them every year. Never knew you. Because you were trusting in that and not in me. Because you believe that was good enough to get you in and not what I did. See, we're not talking about something you manufacture, you pull yourself up with your bootstraps, you try hard. It's talking about a work of God in your heart. You recognize your sinfulness, you turn from your sin, and you embrace that Jesus died as your substitute and rose again. It's believing in that and that alone that saves someone. If you're here and you're a fake challenge you this morning to really search your heart. What are you trusting in? What is your faith in? Please don't leave like Simon. Believe today on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. In the finished work of Christ.
the chapter or the section concludes, it says this. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. There's legitimate heart change in Peter and John in there. They're, they're now not skeptical. They're actually preaching to Samaritans, the ones they hated. And, and it's not enough to be okay with what God is doing. You got to join in what he is doing. It's not enough to come to this church and, ah, oh, it's great. You have to join in in doing what God is doing. That's what we ask. That's what God wants. And you're like, but all these people are different. They're Presbyterian. God loves them, I promise. And he loves you. He pursued you. He pursued them. And so now you embrace people that, are, that don't look like you and that, that believe a, maybe a little bit different and so because that's what God has done for us. And is it messy? Oh, it's messy. Oh, I can tell you. It's messier every week. It's Jurassic Park-like sometimes. But it's good. It's good. There's this great clip and this great line in the movie Walk the Line, the story of Johnny Cash, the man in black. If you haven't seen it, I'm not recommending it necessarily, but it is a great line. All right? But Johnny's about to play at Folsom County Prison. Right, his famous album, Live at Folsom County, right? And, and, the, and the folks come up, they're trying to talk him out of it. Say, Johnny, your fans are church folk. They're Christians. They don't want to hear you singing to a bunch of murderers and rapists trying to cheer them up. And after a pause, and Johnny says, well, they're not Christian then. That's right. They only care about themselves. They don't care about others, then they're not Christian. That's what these guys are doing. Does it cause highs and lows? Does it cause messiness? Is it Jurassic Park? It is. But I can tell you this. There's nothing more messy than Mount Calvary. The messiest of messy was Mount Calvary, where the sinless Son of God took on your sin on himself. The wrath of the Father was poured out on him that deserved to be on you, and he declares you righteous through the resurrection, saying that my life was sufficient, my life was perfect. Nothing is messier than Mount Calvary. Nothing. And that's what we're going to celebrate this morning. All 300 and whatever of us in this room, and it's going to be messy because I don't even know how they're going to get by the ends, but that's all right. And we're going to celebrate what Jesus did for us on Calvary. And if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, if you believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, the forgiver of your sins, and you've put your full trust in him, we have an open table. We invite you to celebrate with us. Here's how we're going to do it. The men are going to try to work their way through the chaos. They will hand out the elements. You sit there until you are ready to partake of the bread, which represents the body of Christ that was crushed for you, the blood that was poured out for the remission of your sins. As you think and spend some time in confession and repentance, when you're ready, you partake. And then we'll stand and we'll worship and we're going to rock the neighborhood, y'all, because we are alive in Christ. We're going to celebrate. Let me pray, and then we'll worship. Father, glorify your son. It is your privilege and pleasure to do so. Do it right now through the celebrating of this table, through the singing of song that talks about what he has done. Glorify your son, Father. Thank you for your goodness towards us. That while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, if someone in this room is a fake this morning and they know it, open their eyes to their need for you, a great Savior. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.